0: Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always Steve Hall and today I'm very excited to have Jake Lenarden on the podcast. Uh, Hopefully some of you may have seen his Instagram account which I think is (laughs) really inspirational and really high quality uh, and that is Break Binge Eating and we'll make sure that's linked below. If you haven't seen that and you haven't heard of Jake then you're in for a real treat because we're going to be talking about some things today that have never been really spoken about in depth on the podcast. And I think that's a problem. I think they should be spoken about more. So Jake is a research research fellow and psychology lecturer at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. Um, so thank you, Jake, for yeah, finding a time to make this work with us both. And he has completed his PhD in 2018 and continued to focus research into eating disorders with a primary focus on testing and evaluating a broad range of treatment approaches for eating disorders and that's something we're gonna be talking about a lot today. His research has been published in numerous scientific journals, and he is one of the key editorial board members of the International Journal of Eating Disorders. So um, you're kind of getting a big idea of Jake is very much into uh, the eating (laughs) disorder area. And actually, before I dig into any of the things, I know we spoke off air about what we're gonna cover. I've just had a question that came to mind, is what made you so interested in eating disorders? Do you have a personal background at all in that area?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's a question that kind of, you know, whenever someone's studying this area, it's always the, the kind of the first question that comes about. Um, so, there's a kind of two pathways in which I decided to get into this area. And one was uh, previously, I was I was pretty um, uh, full on into the gym in terms of, you know, I used to go to the gym quite regularly when I was around, you know, 16 to 20, that mark. And, I, you know, I'm striving to achieve a, a certain physique. And just kind of caught myself doing some of these unhealthier behaviors. So, you know, those really restrictive diets, um, you know, bit of obsessive exercise, preoccupation with food. Um, so I just I just caught that a little bit. And then I decided I'll, I was just having a think about, you know, why am I doing this? What are the underlying kind of reasons and motives for doing this? And just kind of sparked a bit of interest in the area um, because I knew it wasn't having the best impact on kind of my functioning or my quality of life, but I was still continuing to do it. And because of that, and I was studying psychology at the time, so the two go hand in hand. And you know, I got further into my psychology degree when I started to do a, an honours uh, thesis or a, a research project, and I decided to focus on eating behaviour, and that really caught my interest because you know I really got a chance to study this this kind of these phenomena in the real world. And then I just I just I ran with it to be honest. And once I finished that honours degree, I then uh, went straight into a PhD where I really focused on, on the eating disorder side of things. Um, so to, to broadly answer your question, yes, I certainly have some experience with these unhealthy eating patterns and exercise patterns. uh, but unfortunately that's the norm now rather than the exception. So, so many people are going through these uh, particular issues. So I think, um, uh, finding some ways to kind of tackle or address them because we know how, you know, how, how, um, how detrimental they can be to our health um is kind of where i'm hoping to step in so that's the very very broad and vague overview of my history of this topic.
0: yeah i think anyone who is diet i think it's almost you almost inevitably get a little bit close to some of the disordered mm. behaviors when you diet no matter who you are just as you diet because you do get that slight preoccupation with food because you go, you just have mm. to think about it more than you ever have so uh i think Especially for the audience that we have, coaches and physique competitors and everyone listening to this is kind of geeking up on how they've got a preoccupation with muscle growth and fat loss. So they've certainly, I think a lot of the listeners will have experienced eating disorders. Some may have it and um, many probably have kind of seen people maybe who have it and uh, have certainly experienced a lot of the kind of symptoms that uh, all of us eventually kind of see when we diet down. And something I yeah. think uh, I wanted to start with was kind of what are the main eating disorders that you see and kind of categorize those and kind of maybe define them mm. for the listeners. Cause I think a lot of people kind of hear eating disorder and they're not exactly sure kind of the differences between them and what they are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to preface before, before I say this, this isn't uh, a unique phenomenon. So that these eating disorders are present across multiple populations and we see them really elevated in the fitness community, um, where I guess your, your audience is primarily. Um, so hopefully it offers some some new insights and information to that because we know, as I mentioned, how kind of uh, detrimental they are. But in terms of the, the eating disorders, we usually th- see three broad categories of eating disorders. And the one we, um, the one we hear most about is anorexia nervosa. Um, so that is where someone is maintaining a really dangerously low body weight and they've really got an intense fear of weight gain. Um, so they're able to maintain that really strict and rigid level of dietary restriction. Um, but it all stems from this cognitive component of these body image concerns, and that feeds into that, that strict dietary restriction, which then they're able to sustain, and it leads to these starvation-related symptoms. So they want to gain control back, um, and then the cycle just repeats itself. So that's the, that's the eating disorder um, that we see typically in the media. Um, uh, that really emaciated, you know, typical young white woman. That's the mm. kind of stereotype of it. We know that that's kind of changed at the time now. Uh, but the, the eating disorders that I'm more focused on and my research is primarily involved in is the eating disorders of characterized by recurrent binge eating. So we can distinguish between two different types. And the one type is bulimia nervosa, um, which is characterized by a couple of things. One being um, recurrent episodes of binge eating uh in combination with various compensatory behaviors so things like people self induce vomit they take laxatives um diuretics and things like that and the those compensatory behaviors are a direct response to the binge eating episode because people feel so guilty and ashamed of all the food that they consume they try to get rid of those calories but interestingly those methods are not effective at all so when people self induce vomit for example they only get rid of a very small Percentage or proportion of the calories that are actually consumed. So it's actually really not an effective method. But the issue is, people do it because they're not educated about that. That's a bit of another story. Uh, and it's also characterized by intense uh, and overvaluation of weight and shape. Is what we call it. It's essentially, where people base their self-esteem on their weight and shape. So when you think about it, people without an eating disorder, they equate who they are as a person on many different life domains: it's their friendships, their social, uh, their social life. Um, you know their schooling achievements, their sporting achievements. People with eating disorders, and particularly bulimia nervosa, just base who they are as a person on their ability to control their body weight and shape. That's what we think that is the thing that's driving the other features of bulimia nervosa and other eating disorders. Um, so that's why it's important to tackle that. It's a little bit different to binge eating disorder. So binge eating disorder is they share very similar features though, but the difference is people with binge eating disorder don't go on and purge or compensate. They just binge eat. They feel incredibly guilty, disgusted, and ashamed with themselves, but then they won't do anything about it. So that's a bit different to bulimia nervosa. Um, But the interesting thing about those two disorders is that bulimia nervosa is much harder to treat um, compared to binge eating disorder. So we see typically recovery rates in binge eating disorder to be around 50%. Whereas bulimia nervosa drops down to about 25%. So there are some differences going on with those two disorders, but there are also some very important commonalities or similarities to do with them as well. But they're the main features that distinguish between the eating disorders. Uh, But there's recently been a movement to push and to kind of get rid of all of those separate categories together and just have one big category called Mm -hmm. an eating disorder. And that's what we call a trans-diagnostic approach. And the idea is that, all eating disorders share a common cause or a common feature that is driving the other clinical features. And if we're able to address that common cause, then we should be able to tackle the eating disorder. It's a little bit of a, might be a little bit beyond the scope of this particular podcast, but it's just something to be in mind. And it's interesting to get people's thoughts, opinions and just to really think about, um, you know, these kinds of concepts, because we do realize that people shift eating disorders over time. It's very common for someone to have anorexia and then develop bulimia a month later, for example. So they're the, they're the main types of eating disorders and the distinguishing characteristics of them.
0: Would you say, I don't know if I'm um, drawing the wrong common thread, but is the common thread kind of the poor associate or the association with the physique for how like their worth? Is that the common thread between all three?
1: That's the theory behind it. So the theory okay. behind it is the 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 body image component and that, over-concern over or over-evaluation of, of body weight and shape. Um, so these people with eating disorders, and people in the general population do experience this as well, but it's much more pronounced and intense in people with eating disorders. So it's that physique-related idea that in order for me to be a complete and whole human, I need to have this particular body weight and this particular shape. And if I don't have that, then I'm actually a failure as a person. Right. That's the way these yeah, people with eating disorders generally think. Um, you know, people might be thinking that and go, oh, that's ridiculous. But that's actually the way that these particular people think. And it's quite interesting, it's, it's so ingrained, it's been in there for so long that they, this way of thinking, that it's really, really, really difficult to kind of modify. So we need to try to find some small inroads to do that. Because it's this is the that, that feature is the thing that's holding the eating disorder together that's the theory so if we're able to you know to break into that then every other feature above that because it's supporting it kind of breaks apart and that's what we try to try to get out there um, but unfortunately people set such I'm sure that you can um, relate to maybe some of your clients that people will take such perfectionistic approaches to their body weight and shape so if they're not at, a body fat percentage of 8.435, then they're a failure. So they need to get to that one desk, you know, that point, that three decimal places. Uh, And it's, this is like a legitimate thing. People go to that extreme and to that, uh, you know, obsessiveness. So it's really important to kind of, you know, modify these inflexible rules that people have about their weight and shape. But yes, to answer your question, that's the defining feature of those eating disorders.
0: It's scary because that defining feature is so much you know, kind of the almost the defining feature of bodybuilding, bikini, yeah. physique, sports in general. is like it's obsession with your physique and how you're looking. Absolutely. And, you, and people are looking at the body, the, the scale every day and kind of it needs to be coming down. I need to be looking tighter in the mirror. And yeah. at times people then even, and you hear it all the time, people look back at them dieting down and they're like, I thought I was fat here. And here, now I know I'm shredded. And I guess that's a good thing because now they've got that hindsight and they're kind of recovered. But I Mm. guess in many ways, when you do take it to the extreme of to stage and to compete, you are Mm. predisposing yourself to potentially an eating disorder, I guess.
1: Yeah. That's the tricky part because it's, it's just, yeah, it's just, I've talked a lot about this competitive, um, you know, competitive sports like bodybuilding and, 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 things like that and it's a sport that you're not going to take away from people. We know that that it's highly associated with these problematic eating behaviours and almost by definition it has to be. I mean you're not going to start telling people stop doing this sport that you love doing. Uh, But there are certainly mechanisms we can put in play that can help people prevent the onset of these things from occurring. Um, so maybe it might be a little bit worth touching on those, those potential strategies, you know, some way, some time during this podcast. But again, it's, it, it, would be, it would be wrong for me to preach here and go, right, we shouldn't, you know, everyone should the bodybuilding should be banned or things like that um, because it's a sport that people are incredibly passionate about. So yeah, it's a tricky, it's a really tricky one because I'm, I'm here as a researcher doing stuff, trying to help people stop these potential behaviors. And we have a sport that almost promotes these potential behaviours. So where can we find some common ground to kind of mitigate or prevent the onset of these things from happening? It's a it's a question that's ongoing um, mm. throughout the research and throughout the literature. But it's just really important to to keep in mind um, as someone who are, who is going into this sport, what are some safer things that I can implement? I think is is quite important, and I'm sure you you'd probably agree with that as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's when I think about it in terms of i don't know something like rugby it's like head injuries Mm. and knocking like potentially causing lots of like i don't know potentially brain damage whatever it might be or broken bones Uh, these are also kind of it's just a different kind of angle it's not like a physical feature it's more of a mental feature and uh, Mm. you know when you're entering those sports you manage it as best as possible i think it's just lesser known that when you really diet down to stage you are predispose yourself to different kind of injuries but they're not kind of injuries yeah exactly so i think you're right in that people love extreme sports it's it's their life to live so Mm. it's about managing as best as possible and i think that's what yeah like i said that's what you're doing a really good job of with the information Mm. you're putting out and yeah we will definitely go over those something i did want to ask quickly before we move on to the next kind of section is um with uh kind of compensating for things with bulimia nervosa Does kind of doing extra cardio or um, things like this count within that? Because I know you didn't touch on it, but this is something I see all the time that people be like, I don't know, they overeat and then they compensate Mm -hmm. via doing kind of guilt cardio type of, that's kind of what I've heard it called.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. And, and uh, so I probably should have specified the cardio is, and we know that that's an effective method for kind of burning off calories. So I should have said um, that the cardio itself is, is probably effective, but the other methods that we typically see in bulimia nervosa, so the self-induced vomiting, the laxative misuse, and the, and the diuretic misuse, they're the ineffective methods. So people can, People can run for miles and miles. They're going to continue to burn calories, um, so that's just a you know that's a well-known fact. But when the issue comes is when people use other compensatory methods like self-induced vomiting. Because there was a really interesting study done quite a few years ago, where I don't know how they got it approved through ethics, but anyway, the the, the patients it was in the 1990s or something. The patients with bulimia nervosa were they threw up into a bag and then they measured how much calories were retained from from them. And they actually found that I think from memory, it was only about, um, it was about 40 to 50% of the calories were were disposed. So people really kept in um, more than half of the calories consumed. So the idea is that it's not, um, it's not a particularly effective method. And given the associated medical complications with compensatory behaviors, like self-induced vomiting, it can be very, very problematic. And that's something that needs immediate and urgent attention. The same thing with laxatives. They're not at all an effective tool at reducing any kind of thing. It just, um, it just helps flush the body out a little bit more as well as, you know, those water pills, but exercise driven exercise, unfortunately is an effect, not not sure about unfortunately, but in this context, it is an effective method for getting rid of excess calories. Um, but the issue is people take it to the extreme. And when we know that people take it to the extreme, they cardio, they do cardio for you know six hours a day. That's not sustainable over time. So people aren't able to sustain that. So there's kind of a, a, pro, a pros and cons associated with that. It's like a cost benefit analysis. Yeah. So people aren't able to stick to that, that in the long term. They might be able to do a really big ton of cardio for a couple of days. They're just going to be drained, exhausted. So they're not going to stick to that over time. That's a good point as well. Yeah,
0: yeah I think it's, uh, it's just, it reminds me of when I was, uh, I, I've probably skirted with many of the eating disorder behaviors. And this is mm-hmm. one, I never would make myself throw up. I never used laxatives, but I certainly I'd be out on like the Friday night drink a load of booze, yeah. probably not eat very well. And then the Saturday morning, I'd always kind of make myself Can't do you. this horrendous <laughs> long run. And I felt yeah. I was like dehydrated, hung over, doing this massive run because so I was like, I've got to burn yeah. off all these calories. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. It's- yeah, I
1: used to do that at 6, at 6 a.m. as well. I used to go to the local Oval and, and do like 3K time trials. Oh. Uh, it was uh, crazy days. but um, But yeah, we've moved on from those days. <laughs>
0: yeah cool so yeah the next question i wanted to ask was uh, and it relates very well to what we've been talking about is uh are people predisposed to getting eating disorders or is it kind of the influence of having a physique goal that ends up leading them there and i guess maybe there's some intertwining
1: yeah that's that's also a good question so um we did a we did a paper on this a review paper on kind of uh the context of physical eating behaviors uh in this field so in competitive uh, bodybuilders, physique competitors, and things like that, with, with Eric Helms, and so we looked at the literature on 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 I guess a predisposition to people who get into the sport. And there is some really good evidence to suggest that people who get into the sport already have something kind of quote unquote wrong with them, and we see with men, for example, there's your typical body dysmorphia, dysmorphic symptoms, so that. Um, the idea that they're just re- muscular dysmorphia I should say the idea where they're not very they're not at all satisfied with their physique they just want to attain really lean muscle mass and that leads to preoccupation dangerous restrictive eating patterns and things like that and for women on the other hand people women more so generally strive for that kind of more um, thin related ideal although in the the that's kind of changing now given the goals of, of uh, physique competitors where it's, you know, really toned females are jumping on stage. But the underlying issue is the same, that they're unhappy with their present body, so they want to move forward and, and enhance that in some way. And one useful way to do that is through these particular sports. And the, the thing about these sports, they are very good at keeping people accountable to their word, aren't they? So people, are, if they say, I'm committing to this, I'm, I'm hiring a coach... and I'm paying big money to this coach to get me in stage. Well, they're going to give their all and they're going to do all they can to do that. It's just, it just increases the likelihood of them attaining their goal. And it's very attractive. It's it's an attractive sport for people who have these concerns about their body because to them it could be the solution to, to their, you know, their self-worth, their happiness, not all of them. So this is only a a percentage of people who, who go into the sport. We can't make generalized claims that everyone who does it is pathological but there's a decent percentage that, that are. Um, so it's just important to be aware of that to some extent. So really kind of understanding, so what is it that I'm going into this sport for? Is it for you know intrinsically related reasons or is it more extrinsic? Um, so it's just, just something to keep in mind. But we do know that there is a modest proportion of people that do have not only body dysmorphic symptoms and eating disorder symptoms, but they've also got certain personality traits as well. So that perfectionistic, Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything must be perfect in order for me to, you know, strive and exceed setting unrealistic goals for themselves. Um, And there's also some, a little bit of degree of neuroticism. So we've seen a a decent association between that and people who go into the, the sport and some other kind of negative traits as well so yes there is a link between there but it's not a causal link so we can't say for sure that having this causes people to go in that we just know that there's some degree of association going on and as kind of coaches and people working with this it's just kind of important to recognize and 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 flag it early with the person when they come so that you can provide them you know the best available care to them
0: and on that note what are kind of if you were to try and assess uh, a client as a coach um, or even for yourself how do you go about kind of assessing whether or not someone's approaching it because i guess mm. you could find i don't know they've made themselves sick or they've done some extra cardio here or there or they've they've had a binge is there anything you can do before that happens Anything a client or a person themselves can look out for to see that they're kind of getting towards that line
1: yeah so yeah that's a good question so what you want to look for it's hard when you're working with a client because you it's you don't want to directly say to them have you been doing this have you been doing that because these eating disorders by definition like people are ashamed of their behavior no one no one is happy to disclose that they've taken six six donuts and four pieces of bread with thick butter into their bedroom and stuffing their face so it's hard to disclose to some extent so what you can do is try to get around it by looking at the other things as well that are that are not so obvious and overt, like eating behaviours. So what we talked about earlier, gauging the sense to which someone uh, evaluates who they are as a person on the basis of their weight and shape. So really, if they put so much emphasis and drive on you know their physique and their particular weight-related goals, then it can be a little bit of a red flag because it means that that's what that's typically all they value in their life at that moment, or it takes up a really big sphere of their life, you know, uh, self worth domain. And then the issue is because, you know, there can only be one winner in these, I think, in these particular um, uh, sports. And the issue is if someone fails at that domain, that they set themselves, then or then kind of all hell breaks loose. There's mm. a lot of consequences that happen with that. So you certainly can get a sense for some, warning signs and that comes down to that that extreme preoccupation or body image concerns and also the way that they've been dieting in the past is a good indicator as well so we want to differentiate between a more rigid versus a more flexible or a graded approach so people who take a really rigid and restrictive approach uh, that is also a good sign that there is a you know it's strongly linked to the onset of eating disorders so what i mean by that is some Some really rigid and restrictive behaviors include, you know, fasting. So people who fast for very long periods of time throughout the day. um, I think we use the general rule is about six hours or so where they deliberately don't eat or drink anything because they claim that it's better for weight loss or whatever. Um, I'm not sure that the evidence is pretty stacked up in that, but... That kind of behavior, in addition to these really rigid dietary rules that people have about what they can eat, so they have a list of forbidden foods that they will never allow themselves to eat, um, and when they can eat, so that you know that fasting type behavior, and how much they can eat. So when people set really dangerously low calorie limits, um, that is far less than what the body requires to function optimally, then you can get a sense of, okay, here are some warning signs there. So, as you know, if someone is a coach, there I would look out for those two key features: that that preoccupation or those extreme body image concerns, and the way someone is trying to restrict their eating at the moment. They're probably the two ways you can assess whether there's something deeper going on. I think.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely those uh, that restriction and the obsessiveness with physique. I guess it's for me when I'm thinking about myself as a competitor or my clients and I guess probably for the listeners it kind of is on a spectrum in that during your kind of off-season you're hopefully right at the end of you're not obsessed with how you're looking you're not too focused on food you're very flexible Mm. and that's kind of allowed because you're maybe in a surplus or something like that whereas then the kind of final months leading into a show you're probably right on that uh, ticking every box for the problems (laughs) for eating disorders in terms of like maybe you're on a meal plan like you've only got a number of foods that you're eating you're very obsessed with how you're looking so i guess it's is that something Is that a sustainable approach you think? I don't know if that's been researched at all, where people kind of can work on a spectrum. Can people get away from it? Is there, I guess, Mm. is going to be individuals who they compete and then they can never separate themselves from having done that. They're now too kind of intertwined with that.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, We pose that as a kind of a future research direction in that review paper I was talking about because there hasn't been any research on it at the moment. So you know, as we talked about earlier, you, in order to succeed in this sport, people, not only are people going to go in this sport, but they're going to give it their absolute, absolute all. And to do that, they need to be kind of obsessive towards the end of the stages. That's a given. We can't we can't change that. Mm. So then, what we can do is promote we can promote healthier eating patterns that follow the the, the, comp- the post competition and that towards the initial stages of the competition. Because my understanding. I'm not entirely privy to this sport, by the way, but my understanding is that um, the very early stages of competition, people try to or prescribe a more flexible or a graded approach to eating, like that flexible dieting base. But when they get towards the very end stages, then it's kind of has to be spot on and and really, I think, is that how it kind of operates?
0: Uh, In maybe, if this is the right way to say it, the evidence-based sphere, I would say kind of the 3DMJ, renaissance periodization, these kind of um, JPS, us, that's kind of how we would hope to do it. Uh, I think, unfortunately, in maybe some of the more, maybe old school or uh, kind of hardcore bodybuilding camps, it might be a little bit more rigid throughout. uh, The whole way. uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So moving through the the patterns of eating styles is is a question that we need to answer. We're not sure whether that's possible at the moment just because it hasn't been researched, Mm. but we know we can kind of extrapolate from the research findings and and provide some tentative suggestions for how people can go about this in the healthiest way possible. So we we know a couple of things. We know that the rigid approach to that, you know, obsessiveness and really, those really insane diet rules you know that that's detrimental that that is a strong predictor of binge eating and eating disorders but that's an approach people take towards the end of their competition so what we can do and there's a good deal there's a bit of research showing that this rigid approach doesn't have to lead to these particular problematic outcomes when it is in a very controlled environment so what I mean by that, there's a bit of research showing that when people are supervised for you know they're they're closely monitored and they're put on highly restrictive calorie and weight loss diets um they don't they actually decrease their binge eating over time and the hypothesis put forward is that it's because that these people are in a really highly controlled environment their food is kind of you know um uh, prescribed to them really kind of in a very minute manner and they're being monitored by someone else or supervised by someone else The issue is when people try to take these behaviors on their own and try to do it by themselves. That's when people can kind of go crazy and then start binging and all of that. And the other important point is that with these competitions, there's a definite end date in mind. The person knows that their show or their competition is on Saturday, the 17th of November, for example. So that's when the diet finishes. When people who in the general population go on these incredibly rigid diets, they do it indefinitely. So there's no way of sustaining that indefinitely. So when you know that your diet is going to end on the 17th or the strictness of the rigidity will end then, then people are much better able to control their eating behaviors for that shorter amount of time. The issue is then what happens when people finish that show. So what are some best practices that we can do? And we know that the flexible approach is more healthy than the rigid approach. Or I shouldn't say more healthy. We know that the flexible What we don't know is whether the flexible approach is unhealthy, is what I'm trying to say. There's no evidence to show that the flexible approach to dieting is unhealthy or is associated with poor outcomes. Um, That's what the research has told us at the moment. So the answer to that is we know it's safer than the rigid approach. We don't know whether it's healthy per se, but we know that it's safer than the rigid approach. So that's a really important distinction to make. Because the people who are kind of anti-diet, I think, don't make that distinction quite enough, and and the evidence is just not out there at the moment with the flexible approach. But there's a considerable body of evidence showing that people who are able to eat based on their internal hunger and satiety cues, or really listen to what their body is kind of telling them, that is a strong predictor of healthy behaviours, healthy eating patterns, healthy behaviours. So what we, what you know, coaches or, or you know supervisors should should try to do uh and and again this is not based on hardcore evidence it's based on it's based on a a kind of a bit of a separate literature but we're trying to extrapolate it to this what we want to do is after the person has finished that really rigid and restrictive approach try and navigate them through a more intuitive based approach so really trying to get them to tune into their biological hunger and satiety cues if someone is not going to diet for you know, five years straight, they got to start, they got to have a break. And, you know, guiding them through ways in which you, you can you can eat based on your hunger and satiety is, is, is an important step, I think, towards mitigating these potential harmful behaviors there. But we don't know yet whether that's possible. We just need to study that a little bit further.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, because I think of, uh, I just think of my, I literally take myself, for example, right now, if I was to eat to yeah. uh, intuition, uh, and to like hunger signals, I probably would eat I'd probably be losing weight right now, to be honest, um, because I'm yeah. really struggling to even eat enough to maintain, let alone get into a surplus, which is my aim. So, as yeah. a physique competitor, we obviously take things quite to the extreme even Mm. to a point of which, and I think people assume it's healthy all the time, but probably even to the point of which it's unhealthy to be in, like, I'm essentially force-feeding, I guess, which I don't know if that's shown in literature or has been researched, like people pushing themselves to try and gain weight, whether that becomes unhealthy. And then uh, similarly, there might be people who, I don't know why, they might have like a large appetite and they may find Mm. that if they eat to hunger, they gain excessive weight and that might be associated with, prolonged time being lean or excessive dieting i don't know if there's any literature on that sort of angle or if you have any thoughts
1: yeah so so what we yeah that's a good question actually so what what we do know is people who have a chronic history of dieting and and by definition they would be these people that are going into these particular shows their hunger and satiety cues are basically shot they're disrupted Mm. and they're unreliable they're, they're completely unreliable because it's been Almost since the, the person was, okay, um, a child, since they were listening to their body when they eat, because we know that people start dieting at around, you know, ten years old these days. Um, so, so people, it's very difficult for someone who's been a chronic dieter to then say to them, okay, now let's start listening to your hunger and satiety cues. The person will go, what does that even mean? So there are a couple of steps we can take. To help someone get back to those particular signals, so you know, um, someone who's that they can—they've described to me personally that they can eat just forever. They can—they mm-hmm. don't—they they can't stop eating because they're just always, you know, they're always hungry. So the the approach that I like to kind of take is a is a standard CBT based approach, and what I like to do um, in these situations where someone has severely disrupted hunger and satiety cues is take a regular eating approach what i mean by that is tell the person um you know in order to regain some control over your eating back what you need to do is you need to eat three meals and three snacks every day no more than three hours apart so stick to this really regular pattern of eating and what we know or what we what we see happens over time once someone adheres to that pattern of regular eating their their biological cues start to retrain themselves they start to then, you know, um, uh, because it's, it's, you, you're providing structure to the person and then they know that, you know, the three hours is coming up. Okay. I'm starting to feel a bit hungry again and then they'll eat and then they'll realize I'm going to be eating in three hours time, which is not long time. And they'll realize their body starts attuning themselves to what their signals are actually telling them. And it may take quite a long time for a person to retrain those cues, But before we jump immediately into that, that listen to your body cues, what I think we need to do is have some degree of stabilization. And to do that, we just really stick to this pattern of regular and flexible eating. So I like to call it the three hour rule where, uh, where people just go, okay, every three hours I'm got minus the sleeping hours. Every three hours I'm awake, I'm going to have something to eat. Three decent sized meals and then three decent sized sacks. And that is actually the most effective element of treatment for binge eating type problems um so that's an important kind of uh, point to make and and that's a way kind of to to enhance those that intuitive eating based um, signals
0: mm-hmm. and then on the other extreme for, in my example would you say kind of the, the fact that I'm having to go past hunger, um, and I'm actually like almost stuffing myself, if, and I'm having to rely on like liquid calories and things. Is that getting to the point of which, is that an, a negative now, or is that I don't know because it's in a surplus, it's not associated with poor eating, dis- like eating disorders mm. or behaviours.
1: Yeah, that's that, that's a, that's a good that's a good point. In, I think I think the answer to that is is it impacting you? So if it if it doesn't impact you physically, socially, and psychologically, then then, what's the, you know, who cares? Right. If, if that's the way, like, it's, if it's not having an impact on you, then then so be it. Um, the, the problem is when people are doing this and they're actually, you know, physically becoming sick, you know, they're, I don't know, they're, something's wrong with them physiologically because they're just consuming a certain amount of, of vitamins or, I don't know if that's possible to have an overabundance of a particular vitamin, but. For someone who's who's eating in a particular way, if they've got no issue with it and if they're not impacted at all in any way, then it's not a particular problem. So, by definition, when we when we you know diagnose someone with the DSM, one of the criteria is clinical significance, and that is is the issue that you're having at the moment having a profound impact on your day-to-day functioning. And if it is, then it's an indication that we need to stop it. But if it's not, and you're you're completely fine with it, then so be it. But well, we know that some of these behaviors like binge eating and, and purging, we know that that's having a profound impact on the person. But if you're overeating from time to time, everyone does that. and it's not a big issue. It's what you do after it that's the big deal. If you go out and decide to compensate or if you loathe in your guilt because you've overeaten, um, you know, you've eaten 200 more calories than you were meant to, then that's an issue. So it's just whether you view it as a particular problem, that's whether it's an indication of whether you should do something about it. Right?
0: I really like that because it leads me to a, a something I've probably discussed with a number of clients and other individuals who are maybe a little bit more similar to myself, who uh, really kind of uh, thrive from structure in yeah. that I would say I, I tend to track quite kind of, I don't go to in, intuition uh, very regularly, yeah. but the amount of tracking I do doesn't take away from, like you said, any area of my life. It's kind of like if I yeah. can't track because I'm on holiday or I'm away then I don't and I use that kind of in, intuitive mindful eating approach but when I'm yeah. in my own kind of day-to-day living and I'm I can work from my kitchen for example I then will track most things and my kind of re- rationale behind not finding that a problem was what you said there in that I don't find it stressful to do so. And um, that is kind of the line of thought I had with clients where they were like, I feel like I should be doing this intuitive eating approach because it's become really popular. And uh, they were like, whenever they tried to go down that route, it felt more uncomfortable. And they were actually kind of like, actually, I find what I was doing before with the minimal tracking and things like this. A little bit more less stressful. So, does that in line with what you were saying in terms of if what you're doing isn't causing you stress or clinical significance, then it's maybe yeah. not such a concern.
1: Absolutely, and what you're what you're doing is healthy behavior. <laughs> like that, that is what we call ha- that. That what you've just described there is a healthy relationship with food. The issue is if someone is know, if we take another person and they're, they're tracking, you know, on their day-to-day life and they're terrified to go on a holiday because they realize Perfect. that the structure is there and what they might do is not, might even delay the holiday, not even go or cut it short to some extent because they're so concerned about tracking. That's when the issue arises or when we see people who do not go out for dinner because they don't know what the chef is putting in their meal, yeah. for example, that is a problem because it's impacting them socially. Um, so so what we need is that common middle ground and there's not one approach There's not one way to fix it there. Are, there are multiple ways in which we could deal with these things some people uh, Swear by the intuitive eating approach where they've really tried to train their hunger and satiety cues and their eating is guided by that That works for them great good on them keep doing that another person might like structure might like control they might say right i'm going to eat every three hours this helps me gain re, regain control over my eating back helps me stops me from binge eating because i'm eating enough throughout throughout the day great do that or there might be someone like yourself who is you know tracking to some extent then realizes on the weekend hey I'm, i can have a break because it's the weekend i don't need to do it seven days a week and they've also got that healthy relationship with food so in all three examples in my opinion and 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 kind of professionally speaking, I think that is healthy behavior. Again, it just comes back to if it's impacting any domain of life, like really impacting and having a profound influence, then it's an indication, right, you've got an unhealthy relationship there. Let's do some things to kind of get back to your level or the other person's level that are doing those healthy behaviors. So I think that's spot on exactly what you were
0: Fantastic. Yeah. It's uh, when you said uh, about, Eating at restaurants and things. This reminded me of. I remember in my contest prep. I think it was my first one. I took a weighing scale to. I think it was like oh, a Harvest or a Took a weighing scale to a restaurant. All I had was a grilled chicken breast, a baked potato, and like some peas. Yeah. And I weighed everything. I think I cut the potato in half and had to chuck <laughs> half of it. And uh, yeah, that that caused me some distress. I can remember. And then I bought a. Yeah. Uh, i bought a miniature scale that i could take like in my pocket around so that if ever wow. i was eating out i could wear out my food and thankfully after like i don't know a couple of weeks post show i was like why did i buy that scale that is yeah. kind of a w- complete waste so yeah um, yeah it's, the, it's
1: understandable though like people who people who are you know they need to get to a certain level like that's their sport that's what they're competing for that's their profession it's understandable that they can do that but they do realize, you know, like you said, looking back, it's, it's, it's problematic, isn't it? Like, it's just, it's a bit, I don't, did you feel awkward doing that? Like, yeah, I did. Yeah, (laughs) I can remember. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, it was good that you, you recognize that you look back and you're like, Hey, that was a bit weird, but you had it for a purpose and it's understandable what your purpose was. And then you're able to get back on track once yeah. you've, um, you know, got to normalcy, essentially your normal life. So it's also an important thing to consider for people who are trying to, you know, take this competitive sport to the extreme. I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so my next question is to do with, if you kind of feel like maybe you've got the eating disorder, um, what are the best ways to go about kind of trying to recover from it or, um, how can a coach maybe help and, Maybe at what point, if, for example, for myself, I'm not, I'm not you, I'm not kind of qualified to help people with eating disorders. At what point do you think it's a case where you need to refer out or should it be kind of quite immediate?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a, that's an interesting question. So what are the things that we could do to help them? So. The, the best available approaches we have for eating disorders, particularly the ones of binge eating type, are these CBT approaches, which is a mixture of a blend of changing people's behaviour and trying to restructure their attitudes and their thoughts. So we know that there are a couple of key components that are useful for addressing binge eating-related problems. Um, because And what we want to do to address those binge eating problems is try to tackle the underlying things that I mentioned earlier that are supporting the binge eating. So those in body image concerns are that really restrictive approach to eating. So you know if if someone's a coach and that they have a, a particular client who is exhibiting these really problematic eating behaviors, not only, not only the ones that are really competitively lifting, but the ones that just go to the gym every day, because I'm sure you have clients that you just you just take for personal training sessions because they've got their own goals and things like that. There are certainly methods you can employ that can that can steer them in the right direction. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to try to cure them or, or you know stop their eating disorder or the eating disorder behaviour completely. But there are things you, you can nudge them in a certain direction, and there are a couple of things. One is that regular eating schedule that I talked about. So rather than you know rather than telling them to rely on their hunger and society cues for someone who's struggling to regain control over the eating. I would stick to that regular eating plan where it's like, all right, stick to this plan. Just give yourself a sense of control. Um, what I would also recommend is people, um, learn a lot of the time people binge eat because they're feeling pretty crappy. They've got a really, they've had a bad day or things like that. So really trying to you know implement some adaptive emotion regulation strategies. So really, you know, suggesting to a particular client, Um, things like mindfulness meditation that's been shown to reduce binge eating behaviours because instead of acting out on your negative mood by binging you're trying to stay in the present moment you're focusing your attention on one particular thing and the idea is that the binge urge will will subside over time if you're able to stay there so there are a couple of techniques you can can tell them or, or, or suggest to them so those mindfulness techniques meditation Um, that regular eating schedule and also trying to modify their reasons for coming into the gym is also an important one. So a lot of the times people who come to the gym are doing it for a, a particular weight or shape related goal. What about if you as a, as a, as a personal trainer can, can hopefully to some extent shift that motivation a little bit. So the example I like to use is really trying to get people to focus on their performance in the gym. So a really good way to do that is to go, right, Get them on a, on a schedule that helps them beat their PBs, for example, that helps them get, you know, get to a new weight that they're lifted on the bench press or the squat. The idea is to shift the motivation and people want to come into the gym for their performance related purposes rather than their weight and shape related purposes. So they want to come to the gym because they wanna they wanna do well, they wanna lift their heaviest weight. That's their goal, rather than it just being, oh, I want to get down to 75 kilos. And if you're able to shift that perspective a little bit, what we've actually seen is that those problematic eating behaviors tend to reduce. So it's simple for the, it's simple for a coach to try to shift those behaviors. So really ingraining, you know, those, those underlying motivations and what's more important in the gym, because someone who is going to the gym for performance related purposes are much more likely to stick to their exercise regime than someone who's going into the gym for weight and shape-related purposes. So those are the those are some small techniques you could try to implement if you're a coach to help nudge someone in the right direction. But obviously, if someone is exhibiting these really problematic eating patterns and they've got that intense preoccupation with weight or shape, that really restrictive eating behaviours, and then as a result, those purging and binge and eating um, in eating behaviors, then it's probably wise to suggest them to probably seek out professional help and resources. Uh, but you can you can certainly nudge them in the direction. Yeah. I hope that kind of answers what you were what you were asking there.
0: Yeah, everything you were saying there is things that I think are good practice just generally for clients anyway, yeah. uh, especially during times, even when they're dieting and when they're trying to then gain. But kind of mm. shifting perspective, especially when I think about a competitor post show, uh, when they maybe are exhibiting some kind of slight disordered behaviours. Certainly focusing yeah. on like the performance and things mm. like this rather than strictly on the outcome and. I even try and I think it's as good as a competitor to focus on enjoying the process rather the than the process. Stri- yeah, exactly. But being process orientated in general, I think is a much healthier thing to be doing and enjoying that aspect rather than kind of, am I there yet? Am I shredded yet? Yeah. And then yeah. you, are, you you place too much value on the, the outcome of being on stage. And like you said, there could only be one winner uh, you can't yeah. predict who's going to be there on the day. So most of us, if we, solely put all our self-worth on just winning we'd be devastated yeah. because most people don't win so exactly <laughs> um yeah it's it's something i have personally had to do as well because i mean the chances of me winning shows aren't super high so i have to really derive kind of lessons and loving the process and what i get from that rather than just from that outcome because yeah in reality i think even if you were to win and get that outcome then it's still a short-lived thing whereas if you've got value from the entire experience then you're getting so much more out of everything
1: exactly and and i and I, I haven't I've done this sport myself but I could imagine that you know based on what you're saying you've learned a number of life skills that come out of the process as well so it's not only that you know the outcome may be desirable and that you've you've won but you've you've, you've come you come first or something but the, the consequences of that show so realizing these problematic behaviors that you may be experiencing and then shifting to more healthier behaviors um, like you mentioned a bit earlier, how, you know, you, you're able to have a flexible approach where you don't need to take the scales on, you know, when you go on a holiday. Um, I, I dare say you probably, you know, you, you might have taken that from your experience or as that, you know, the process involved there and use that to your advantage. So um, I think, yeah, looking towards the process is, is a very healthy way to, you know, if there is a healthy way to engage in this sport, kind of psychologically, I think that's the that's the approach that people mm-hmm. should be taking. Um, and then, you know, realising how then you could best move forward from that experience.
0: Fantastic. And I think this is the thing I wanted to finish on, and I think it's gonna be really valuable. And you'd already touched on quite a lot of some of this i think already in terms of what can we do to be proactive about preventing these kind of uh, eating disorders and maybe you talked about some of the kind of protective factors in terms of kind of the self-compassion intuitive eating uh, being mm. mindful and kind of yoga that sort of well, not yoga you said meditation i kind of end up putting <laughs> them in the same kind of uh yeah sorry, they actually. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned in an infographic and it was really great some risk factors as well. Uh, I'd yeah. love to kind of hear about obviously dieting is one of them. Um, but yeah. one of the ones I think we haven't touched on is kind of that me with like Instagram, especially, um, media exposure and, um, that sort of thing. I'd love to hear kind of some comments on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the most well established and best replicated risk factor is, um, the media exposure that we experience these days. And we know that the media is full of appearance ideals. So basically telling us that that women should look kind of relatively slim, slender and toned, whereas men should be relatively buff with little body fat. And that that's what we call these appearance ideals because the media tends to portray these ideals in a way that if you achieve those particular ideals, then you will, the consequence of that is that you will be successful, you will be happy, and and so on so all these positive outcomes will happen if you're able to attain this particular physique and that's what's portrayed in the social media mainstream media television cartoons etc um there was an interesting thing I, p- I posted a while ago where um it was around you know in popular children's cartoons uh, i think around you know 70 the, percent of the female characters were, were portrayed as thin and they were mm-hmm the characters in the cartoons had really desirable characteristics. So they were really caring, friendly, kind. Whereas the 30% that were portrayed as overweight were portrayed, um, were had personality traits of greed, sluggishness wow. and things like that. This is happening in kids cartoons. So it kind of, the message is, is coming from everywhere for these, these, these children and these adolescents and even young adults. Um, And the consequence is that is people realize, Hey, this is what I need to do to to succeed in life. I need to get to this particular figure because it will bring me all this wealth, happiness, power, success. it will get me all the girls I want and the, you know, and and things like that. So what happens is these, uh, these, so the social media is the, not the social media, the media in general is the first link in the chain. The second link is whether someone buys into the idea that I need to be able to to get this physique in order for me to be happy. So they buy into it. That's the second link in the chain. The third link in the chain is the body dissatisfaction problems. So that's when people realize that they can't really achieve these ideals. So no matter how much people try, sometimes it's just impossible to achieve a certain physique that they wanna do. And what happens is people realize that they're unhappy with their body because they don't, they're they not looking like what they want to look like. But that's the third link in the chain. So when they're dissatisfied with their body, they try to fix it. They go, right, I'm determined, I'm motivated. So the next link in the chain is that they start to diet. They go, I'm going to diet because I'm going to try to get to that physique. I'm really unhappy and the way to fix that is by dieting. And they start to diet and then that's when the problematic cycle starts. So the media, as to, to kind of summarise what I just said, the media is the first step in the chain. That kind of triggers or offsets all the other things that happen. Obviously, this isn't happening to everyone. Yeah. It's happening to a small portion of people that are buying into that idea. Uh, but we're yet to be we're a little bit unclear of differentiating between those who do and do not buy into that kind of appearance ideal. But it's just important to recognize that because they're the key risk factors. You can protect against them to some extent by, you know, the things that I talk about intuitive eating, self compassion, having a really strong social supportive network, a really strong family environment. There's some things that can protect against those risk factors. Uh, but it's just useful to be aware of the influence that the media can have on us. And I think the tide's shifting in terms of, you know, you look on Instagram, there's certainly, certainly more kind of inclus- inclusivity to do with kind of body shape and weight these days. Um, so that's I think that's a positive, positive thing because it doesn't reinforce those ideals that we have. Um, but yeah they're the they're the key factors or the key drivers of those problematic eating disorders that I was talking about
0: yeah it's I can see how tricky it is with the media and i uh, I even think of I know people who have been inspired by like superheroes and actors yeah. who are in incredible shape. Or you think, uh, I even think of like Dragon Ball Z and like that's, yeah, that's like gold. <laughs> Goku yeah, is like, like Super Saiyan Goku.
1: He just, you know, <laughs> his physique was incredible.
0: <laughs> super like unrealistic. And even to yeah. the degree that, people don't even realize that someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger or um, Frank Zane and people like this who le- genetics aside were on enhancements they were geared up yeah. and people don't even understand that and they expect themselves yep. to go into the gym for a few years and look that way and it's just yeah, not how it works um, and I don't know how you prevent against that apart from I, I like the angle of like education and being able yeah. to kind of get people understand that but I think to break through when you have it's, it's so hard to break through to those sort of people uh, I don't I, I can only think of I think you may have even posted about it on Instagram where they're starting to um, screen against some of these things like Instagram uh, I think they're screening against like surgery and things for like teens and things like this
1: Yeah yeah so a couple of ways that they've tried to prevent um, prevent these particular things happening one is they they took away the likes of Instagram. Um. So the number of people who viewed who viewed likes on Instagram, because there's actually research showing that people who uh, people who kind of uh, really want those particular likes or reinforce on Instagram more likely to have these body image problems and these eating issues. So they've t- taken a couple of steps to kind of mitigate or prevent against that. But uh, like you said, the the key the key driver of effective prevention is uh kind of education psychoeducation so being aware that these things are unrealistic and kind of challenging them whenever you get the chance to challenge them Uh, they're the key drivers that that can kind of modify or reduce these risk factors and that's been shown to have an have a flow-on effect in terms of reducing the onset of eating disorders as well. So a couple of prevention-based approaches we can use that, that are shown to be effective, but there's still a long way to go. Um, but you can also you know, be aware of the extent to which you've got a particular problematic eating behaviours or patterns. Um, so we've got, uh, you mentioned earlier, I've got something on my website on the, the screening tool, that the, um, the the screening tool for that. So. We've got, if you're interested in checking it out, you've got a screening tool where it's a standardised questionnaire that people can answer answer about their eating behaviours and their body image concerns. And it kind of gives you kind of tailored or personalised feedback about how you score relative to the population. So if anyone's interested, feel free to check that out um, because it's tailored towards, you know, your individual responses there. All I'm trying to say is that there are various mechanisms or tools we can have in place, not only gauge our level of problematic attitudes and behaviours, but also prevent or tackle against them or something like
0: that. Fantastic. I actually, uh, after we come off this chat, I'm definitely going to fill out the screening tool. Ah, I saw right. it and I want I, I I wish I'd done it before we chatted to see how I came out. <laughs> do but it, yeah. I'm definitely going to fill it out and I'll make sure cool. that's a link below. And uh, I want to say a massive thank you to Jake for coming on. This has been a really insightful and really interesting chat. And we've talked about some things, like I said, that have not been talked about on the podcast. And I'm really glad that, Uh, you're out there educating the masses and i hope that this podcast now reaches more people and more people are informed and understand kind of eating disorders better and what they can do to manage that so i want to make sure people uh, know where they can best find you Uh, i know you've got a website and i've said your instagram a number of times so people better start (laughs) following you soon
1: yeah no i just wanted to just wanted to say thank you for having me on it's been an absolute pleasure I've, i've you know seen a few of your podcasts and I love your work. And It's really great to have the opportunity to talk to such a large audience essentially. Um, so very appreciative of that. And so if you, you know, if you're interested in checking out my stuff, um, as I mentioned, the, the break binge eating Instagram. So it's just basically an Instagram that promotes education and, and kind of self help strategies for people who have these particular problems. So be sure to check that out and also the break binge eating website. So it's just, Got a bunch of, again, more detailed articles about eating disorders and all the things we touched on in today's um, podcast, in addition to some screening tools and some self-help approaches there. So, yeah, it'd be great if you could check that out, um, leave feedback, whatever. But, yeah, as I said, Steve, it was um, an absolute pleasure to be on. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to have a, a part two um soon one day <laughs>
0: no 100% all uh, and if people were if say a coach was out there and they wanted someone to refer to do you take consultations for people who maybe are worried about uh, that sort of thing
1: yeah no nah, not not personally myself okay. so i'm just focusing on the on the research at the moment um uh, but there are heaps of different you know uh, some people who in australia for example can look at the butterfly Fla- foundation that, that they have really useful clinicians that are available to talk to by the telephone. Um, and, and, yeah, I should mention as well, without going listing through them all there, all of those resources are on the, the website, the break beginning website as well. So people can check out the resource or get help part of the page. And there's a bunch of things there. So, you know, coaches can refer to that if they want and the client there. So hopefully there's a bit of useful stuff for people, um, interested in this space.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Jake. And thank you all for listening. We'll catch you soon.